Sounding Board, the monthly podcast from new and classic music discussion since 2016. Follow the team on Twitter and Facebook at Sounding Board 69. Welcome to episode 32 of Sounding Board. Today we're going to cast our minds back to one of the most curious eras in musical history, the late 90s, early 2000s hegemony of the superstar DJ, when dance music hadn't yet been branded EDM and it was all one mighty collage of rave, techno, house and hedonism. Joining myself, Rob Langham, for our own particular take on Dave Pierce's Love Groove dance party, glow sticks and bandana at the ready, is Mr David Cox. Hey, hey David. Yeah, hey Rob, yeah. <laughs> but first, before we plunge into the worlds of late 90s dance, any items of music news that have caught your eye this month? Well, as we just discussed, Aretha Franklin passing away this afternoon is the big news. Um, incredibly sad. She, you know, from my... She's not in my record collection, apart from bits and bobs, although she does, of course, pop up like hip-hop loves her. And she's sampled very effectively in a couple of Moss Def tracks, including Miss Fat Booty, which is a great tune. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she featured on the Moonlight soundtrack last year or a couple of years ago, very prominently, and is a complete legend, and I haven't really had time to process it. What about you? No, I mean, I, I heard that she was ill a few days ago, and, and yeah, the news, I mean, 76 is, a, I guess, a decent innings, but so it's not quite on the level of you know, some of the younger... Uh, artists who have passed away but still a landmark artist in every way and I think I mean cliche to say it but of course uh, say a little prayer you know Mm -hmm. has to be up there as one of the greatest songs of all time Mm -hmm. and and, you know that's certainly going to be one of the main things she's remembered for and what a voice as well Mm -hmm. generally Yeah. yeah so and we should really on the pod up to now we have singularly failed to really deal with kind of Motown and 60s and 70s kind of soul and American music and I think that's something that we probably need to do something about mm-hmm. in the coming months yeah and you've also got news of a, of a landmark of another American female artist well yeah I wanted to mention that Madonna has just turned 60 and there's a great piece on the New York Times called uh, 60 times Madonna changed our culture I know that Amy did a great piece in the 80s episode about Madonna in that period kind of her imperial period but then she did have an amazing 90s, and I think we're going to touch on it slightly in relation to dance culture in the 90s, how, how Madonna played a role in that. But, you know, this this article, which is really, really worth reading, talks about how Madonna has led the fight against ageism, sexism. She's prompted interesting conversations about race, cultural appropriation. So the, the image she posted of herself on Instagram on her 60th birthday was from Marrakesh, where she was dressed up like a Moroccan kind of strange Madonna can't really help herself but she you know she's sex positive she's done a lot of pioneering work with the LBGT community she kind of through her yoga and pilates promoted an an image of the female body being strong rather than thin Uh, you could go on right it's Madonna but it's worth saying that she is in a she's an incredible artist business person uh, icon and you know happy birthday 
Yeah, and 60 sounds quite young, really. I think, I mean, certainly in this day and age, 60 is a young age, yeah. isn't it? So I'm sure she's still got plenty more things. Well, she's still touring, and yeah. she's still, you know, putting together a show which would put her younger fans, such as Britney or uh, Lady Gaga, to shame. After this break, we'll be desperately seeking late 90s dance. So, the dance music of the late 90s and early noughties was a very hedonistic era that I think both of us remember well, David, and I'm guessing you might have been a bit more involved in At The Coalface than I was. I was very much an armchair exponent. Where did it all come from? Well, I did some research into this, so I'm going to say the things that I learned that I thought were interesting. It actually comes from the US and Chicago. It's a sort of post-disco movement coming out of a couple of particular clubs that were unsegregated. So at, the mo- at that point in American history, most clubs were segregated, which I thought was interesting and disgraceful. But there was this club which opened on the south side of Chicago called The Warehouse, hence house music. I didn't know that. I didn't know oh, I didn't that. Either, yeah. And then shortly thereafter, New York opened a similar club called Paradise Garage, hence garage music. So there you go. And so it was about reclaiming dance music after disco. And it, it kind of came with a couple of technical innovations, one of which was if people are dancing and they have to lift the record off the turntable, they stop dancing and or leave the dance floor. And so skillful DJs around this time fixed the problem by having two turntables and mixing between the two. At this point, it was just having both turntables having the same record on it, switching one off, playing that one, replacing the other one with another record, then turning, switching the, the volume back on the other way which obviously became very complex later on with beat matching and stuff, and we'll get to that, but that's the the start of uh, house music. And it came across to Britain via one of our superstar DJs, Pete Tong. He put together a compilation in about 1986, which um, took the best of the US scene, and this is really the first time it was exposed on these shores. Well, that's interesting. I've got a compilation called Flux Tracks, which is a three-CD compilation, which from a bit later on, which has got a lot of that early... Uh, house music in it and then Detroit of course became a big thing as well yeah. like the techno scene of people like Derek May yeah. in, in, in the late 80s I'm mm-hmm. guessing I remember some of the Chicago house stuff coming through like Little Benny and the Masters were one of the exponents I think very early I think about 83, 84 and it was uh, quite difficult to define what it was but I certainly didn't know that about like why the term house and the yeah, term garage came from so so really interesting and and that led to the rise of DJing as an art, uh, as well as a profession, as something that would eventually become incredibly well paid. And at the time, there was quite a lot of scepticism about that. But but how did that happen? How did it become such a big thing? I was thinking about this a lot, and I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. I think it's got something to do with post Reagan US and post Thatcher Britain in that there's no better response to kind of organised advanced capitalism than free raves. <laughs> like free illegal raves. Mm. Like the idea that you come together, a sort of the socialist aspect of dance music being, you know, 50,000 people in a field all dancing to the same thing at the same time, just felt like a really great response to what the mainstream was trying to achieve or do to people. I've been thinking about that a lot because, of course... 
That ends up later on being legislated against, in the UK at least, and shut down by the government and by the police. But I think around the late 80s, the sort of acid house, Manchester sort of uh, culture or cultures that kind of crossed via the Hacienda, I think has something to do with that. The very, the dying embers of the Thatcher period in this country was like, we can be different than what you're trying to make us. Yeah, I think that's true. By the time the late 80s had come round, I think, despite its American origins... It was still very underground on the other side of the Atlantic and it had become like a massive thing in the UK. I remember coming back from university after my first year, which was in the summer of 1988. Uh And suddenly the Hacienda, as I went to Manchester, had this night called Hot, which was an acid house night. And then later on, I think, or might be getting this the wrong way around, there was one called Nude as well. And suddenly all the cool kids were going to that rather than the temperance night, which was the indie night that I went to. Now... There were other factors at the time, like New Order came back and recorded the album Technique, which had fine time on it, which was a very kind of Ibiza sort of influenced anthem. But the thing I want to ask you now, really, is did you ever drive out to the edge of the M25 or the like and take part in an illegal rave? I wish I had, Rob. But by the time I was old enough to really get involved in this scene... It was the mid-90s and it was the height of the superstar DJ. So I went to Gatecrasher Fabric, I went to Cream, Ministry of Sound. Uh, Really, it had already gone into the mainstream, especially after, I think it was was in 92 or 94, when the Criminal Justice Act came in. Yes. And and shut all that stuff down. I mean, I would have been a preposterous 12-year-old in a field with some glow sticks. Uh, This wouldn't have happened for me. Yeah, no, me too, but it's probably just more because I was like pretty square. But um, I didn't. I mean, I was up north anyway. But I never, never went to anything like that. As immortalised, of course, in Pulp's "Sorted Freeze and Whiz." How important were the drugs? Massively important. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to say to any children listening to this that they shouldn't take drugs. Yeah, yeah. But God, yeah. I mean, for a start, or your mum. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry, mum. But yeah, I mean, you couldn't go to a night and dance non-stop for eight hours. For so from like ten in the evening to six in the morning without a little bit of help. Yeah. And also the drugs that were being taken, they weren't narcissistic drugs like Coke and they weren't downers like heroin. They were speed and and MDMA or ecstasy, which made one feel energetic and generous. Uh, And when you're in a room of people all experiencing similar or the same thing, whilst this high energy music is going on around you, it was a truly transcendental experience. Yeah. Another thing that was interesting about the era was the the kind of relative anonymity of a lot of the music. I mean, I think we were discussing this the other day, but it was almost a badge of honour to have not heard any of the tracks played by the DJ on a club night that you frequented. I mean, do you remember that kind of feeling? Yeah, totally. I was thinking about this too, and I was thinking about how the great DJs were like stand-up comics. Because you don't want to hear the same joke again, so you don't want to hear the same songs. And what they were doing was, they were taking basically white-label songs you'd never heard of, that they may have ended up in their crate that week. And they were taking the best of those and mixing them and watching the crowd and seeing how they were reacting and taking similar things out of their crate in order to keep that mood going. Or indeed, building a set the way Stuart Lee would build a set. Mm. In that they would take you through journeys. It sounds very highfalutin, but I have been on dance floors where someone's done a three-hour set and they've taken me on a journey. 
And it was incredible stuff, unbelievably, unbelievably technically advanced, but also full of improvisation and creativity too. So, who were the big DJs? Who were the most significant movers and shakers, would you say? So, I've got these four. Yeah. I know you've got some question marks over why these four, but really, these four are on the 1995 Essential Selection double CD. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> kind of, side one is Pete Tong. Yeah. And so, he is well, literally synonymous with house music in the UK and even has his own phrase, it's all gone a bit Pete Tong, yeah. which I must have said ad nauseum around that time, thinking I was brilliant. Yeah, and it begat a film of that title as well, which is right. completely unwatchable, oh, it has to be said. Goodness but, gracious, yeah. you're quite right. <laughs> Funny enough, it was coined by Paul Oakenfold back in yeah. 1987, right? when writing about Acid House, and Oakenfold will come up later. So in 1991, Pete Tong started his Essential Selection Slow on Radio 1. It was on Friday nights, and it shifted around, but it was always between somewhere between 6 and 10. So you'd listen to it before you went out, and you'd hear music you'd never heard before. And he's actually the second longest-serving DJ on Radio 1 after Annie Nightingale, which really? I didn't know. Mm. Yeah. He was also the first to go to Ibiza and broadcast live, so he went there in 93. So you had those great kind of sunset, Café Del Mar sets and whatever. Yeah. God, you could just sit at home and listen to it and just feel unbelievably envious. Mm. And also... And most importantly, maybe, he used to do this thing called The Essential New Tune, where he would take the song he'd heard that week that he'd most liked, and he broke as many dance acts through that feature than John Peel did with Indy, I think. Yes. And so this is the first time I heard Goldie mm. in a City Life was a massive, massive oh, tune. Extraordinary, um, yeah. Massive Attack, Faithless, that Insomnia, yeah. Yeah. Josh Wink, High State of Consciousness, yeah. The Chemical Brothers... Daft Punk, I heard them all through Pete Tong. Yeah. Uh, as, as we'll cover this later, as dance music started to bleed into the mainstream, as the record companies looked for the logical next step after grunge had died mm. in the mid-90s, along with Kurt and a couple of other things. Yeah, that was certainly the connection for me. It was those those artists, that's how I came to it, listening to it, reading about it in the music press and then listening to it uh, on Radio 1 or, or wherever. And all those records you just mentioned, I mean, they're just classics. And I loved bands like Orbital and Leftfield. And, and I remember seeing Leftfield at Brixton Academy on the day that England played Scotland in Euro 96. And, you know, that was like a sort of like 13 or 14 hour drinking day. Um, I probably was the only person drinking there because everybody else was just on the water because they were actually maybe taking something else as well. Um, I don't think Neil... Neil Kennedy would agree, but what a great day that must have been. Oh, yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, apart from Mr. Tong, who, who the so I'll move on out? briefly through the other three. The big of the big four: Carl Cox from Manchester himself. He was more hard house and techno. Yeah, uh, he released his first song through Oakenfold's Perfecto label. So again, Oakenfold's playing yeah. a role here. Uh, the story I'd like to talk about Carl Cox is the fact that at the very height of the uh, kind of I don't know the sort of imperial. Excess of superstar DJs. Carl Cox played the Millennium twice. He did uh, Sydney, Australia. Then he crossed the international dateline, and he did the same show in Hawaii. So he caught midnight in ninety-nine to two thousand twice. He, he was paid six figures. I mean, it was it was silly. It was insane. Yeah. But he himself is a lovely guy and um, and, a, and a very talented bloke. You know, he had a residency at Space Ibiza, and he he was one of those guys who really was breaking through. He paid a lot of stuff on Radio 1, etc. Stepped in for Pete Tong when Pete Tong was away. Then the third one I wanted to mention was Sasha, 
who's Welsh, did a lot of work with John Digweed. So Sam yes, and Digweed yeah. was kind of they were together. Indissoluble, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, he was funny enough one of the innovators who helped DJs move away from turntables towards digital methods, which was also, of course, the beginning of the end of superstar DJs. Yes. From a technical perspective, because anyone could do it. He was sort of euphoric acid house crossed of Italian piano music. Mm. Again, very cheesy, but God, it was good. He earned the nickname, the unlikely nickname, Son of God from Mixmag, yep. so let yep. them never be accused of... Uh, hyperbole. <laughs> uh, he led the charge of dance music and DJs onto video games, of all things. There was right. a real scene around the late 90s where dance music and video games kind of came together. Mm. So he did some work on PlayStation's Gran Turismo in 97. The Chemical Brothers on F-Zero. I don't know if you're a Nintendo fan, but that, that, that whole soundtrack was a Chemical Brothers. That was the first time gamers heard Chemical Brothers. And the two things came together. You play video games while listening to this stuff on your on your stereo, which was quite clever. The last one we've mentioned a few times is Paul Oakenfold, the Londoner. He's synonymous with trance, so kind of sub-genre, much more woozy. And big producer of remixes as well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I came to you all happy and proud of myself, um, having found out that he produced Step On by the Happy Mondays, and you said, oh yeah, I knew that. But I didn't, I didn't before this. Actually, he, he went to New York in the 1980s and brought back with him these influences. He actually worked for an A&R man for Champion Records and signed, amongst others, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince and Salt and Pepper. He also became the British agent for Run DMC and the Beastie Boys. He had a hell of a career. I'd like to read whatever book exists about Paul Oakenfold's career. I'd like to read it. He went to Ibiza in 1987 for his birthday with, amongst others, Danny Rampling, another big DJ. And he basically kicked off the British relationship with the Ibiza dance scene. And beyond Step On, he was he spent a lot of time in, in Manchester at the Hacienda. He was a resident DJ at Cream between 97 and 99, again at the, the kind of peak period. And he crops up all over the place in, in many biographies as a really influential and, and prolific artist. Yeah, and so, but for, I mean, I would name check a couple of others, people like Andy Weatherall, who did some amazing remixes yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I mean, a counterpoint to the superstar DJ thing was that there was many a club night advertised on the wall of London pubs where it would list a club night with a list of DJs that you'd never heard of. And it would be people like DJ Kennedy and Little Puffer Wallhead and those kind of <laughs> names. And, and people would just ingenuously just turn up yeah. and go to those because it just sounded cool, yeah. you know. So, it's, it, 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 you know, there was a counterpoint there because that anonymity and that facelessness was there as well at the same time. So it was a strange kind of mix, wasn't it? You know, But yeah. also there were very, very strong regional scenes. Where yeah. Actually, you, to you, they may be anonymous, but to those kids going to those nights, they may be like, brilliant, little puff of Woolhead's playing. <laughs> yeah. Let's get yeah. down there. Yeah. Because I grew up in the shit end of nowhere in Northampton, but there was a great house scene there. There were a couple of really good clubs, yeah. including the Lounge, where there was a really strong regional scene bleeding out of Birmingham. Yeah. So there were big DJs around there that you would never have heard of, like John the Please Women and stuff. Yes, yeah. Where we were just like, have you heard? He's coming tonight. You know, we were yeah. so looking forward to it. It was a strong Northampton scene of Northampton DJs in a way that you would hope that there would be strong indie scenes in each city too, but sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. Yeah. In those days at least, 
yeah, Northampton had a very strong regional scene full of people that you would never have heard of, but that we loved. Yeah, I do remember John Pleased Women, but yeah, and Tall Paul is another one I yeah, remember. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> um, actually, friend of the pod and previous participant in the pod, Josh Wells, said to me today that what's struck him as interesting about this kind of dance music is that the people who were into it weren't necessarily musos, you know, it was like just people who just wanted to have fun you know is, is that fair it's probably a bit of both really wasn't it oh yeah. man yeah totally I was thinking about this as well in terms of the other things I've talked about with little or no authority on this show but I think about Nirvana and my feelings about that band are so complicated by the fact that I was 15 when he died and it devastated mm. me think about Elvis and I feel rather defensive of him because he has a kind of troubled legacy to say the least I talk, think about George Michael and I kind of think feel bittersweet because I, I love him and he, he 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 died too young and actually he didn't do enough with his talent I don't think and I think about club or dance music which I was massively into for a relatively short but very intense period I feel nothing but joy I had a wonderful time I took way too many drugs I went to silly places and did silly things and exposed myself to quite a lot of risks going to cities I didn't know wandering around their streets at seven in the morning I didn't care I had a brilliant time it was just fun. I'm glad you added the bit about to quite a lot of risks after that exposed yourself comment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I have to clarify my earlier comments. I did not literally expose myself. <laughs> I mean, I may have done, I don't know. So we talked a bit about the super clubs and regional scenes and obviously the Hacienda, which is probably the one that I've got the most experience of, but that was like quite early. I mean, that's like 10 years before the period we're talking about. And it's before, it was still felt a bit of an underground thing then, really. And then you've mentioned already Cream, which was in Liverpool. Gatecrasher, which you got it down as, I mean, was it Sheffield? Or, or, yeah. yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we were wondering whether it was Sheffield or Leeds. God's Kitchen in Birmingham, which you already mentioned, which presumably was within striking distance for you. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we had Ministry of Sound and which was a whole, you know, begat a whole range of clothing and it was a whole brand, wasn't it? And Club UK, of course, in Wandsworth was a big one in London. And then probably the last of the big, big clubs was Fabric, I guess, as well, which was a bit later on into the noughties. Yeah. And then we've mentioned it throughout this conversation so far. We can't really talk about super clubs and regional seas without talking about Ibiza. No, if you're talking about the island, it's actually pronounced Ibiza. But if you're talking about it as a dance scene, I think it's Ibiza. <laughs> and that was remarkable, really, how that all, all sort of took off, wasn't it? I mean, you know, and then the manumission later on yeah. and, and those kind of nights. I mean, it was just pure hedonism, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, you mentioned the Café Del Mar. Never went myself. No, nor did I. But, um, and then it, it stretched beyond Spain as well because there's places like Koh Panyan where yeah. in Thailand where you have the full moon parties and Goa was well-known, wasn't it, as a destination for kind of club heads. So, yeah, I suppose yeah. Ibiza might have been slightly more muso in that if you really loved your house music, you'd go to Ibiza. If you liked dance music but were basically there to pull, you'd still go to Magaluf. Yeah, it's very much people who were into the music, wasn't it? I mean, I doubt the whole island was, but I think the certain... It's very localised. Apparently Ibiza's a beautiful island. And yeah, if you get yeah. away from those couple of hotspots, it's just an idyllic island yeah. full of lovely deserted beaches. Yeah. So any other particular memories about some of those club nights or scenes? Well, I'd like to tell the story of when I went to Cream in Liverpool. So they did a Friday night called Boulogne. Mm. So it went to six in the morning and my mate Wrighty said, my sister's driving, shall we go? So I lied to my parents and said, I'm just going over to Wrighty's. And his sister was going out at the time with a policeman who could get hold of the best drugs. I think that's something to do with the policeman's reach into the netherworld. Drove up to Liverpool after work or after school for us. 
Arrived there around nine o'clock. Had a couple of drinks on Matthew Street. First time for me to Liverpool. Oh, oh, yeah. My eyes were on stalks. Went to Cream. Cream was an amazing place. It was raw concrete. It was water fountains. You couldn't really buy a drink in there. No one was drinking, like you said. Hmm. It was everyone just had bottles of water or, or even just walked, drinking out of these water fountains. The the music was insane, incredible. We danced until six in the morning. Didn't want to leave. Then we drove back. Uh, we drove down the M1, and all of us, all four of us, agreed afterwards that this actually happened, which was that uh, a sheep jumped off a, an overhead bridge in front of the car, landed on four feet like a cat, and ran off the road. Uh, I don't know if that happened or not, but I don't... <laughs> anyway, we all four absolutely insisted we'd all seen it at the same time. Got home and went... I then had to walk in to my parents having their breakfast on Saturday morning, pretend that, uh, you know, Righty had to do something that day, so I've come home early, and act like a human being, even though I was in the depths of a, you know, a quite horrendous come down, and had to sort of say, I'm just going upstairs to do my homework and slept the whole day. Outrageous. After this break, we're going to be looking a little bit more about how house music and dance music moved into the mainstream. So in terms of dance music sort of crossing over into the charts, you mentioned Madonna at the start, which, you know, is quite significant really in terms of 1990s Vogue and Ray of Light from 98. Yeah, I listened to, I mentioned it in the podcast episode, I listened to a great episode of Hit Parade by Chris Malamphy on the Slate Network, and he did a, uh, a show uh, to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Ray of Light, which was, which was the kind of bookend to Madonna's uh, experiments in dance. So yeah, like you said, in in 1990 with Vogue, she sort of took the New York house scene Mm. and put it into a a pop song with that great kind of piano riff, very Italian house. But also 1990 was the first year she worked with William Orbit on a remix of uh, Justify My Love. Of course, yeah. Who who will come back later. Uh, She she released the the kind of house-infused erotica in 1992 and then actually dabbled in trip-hop on Bedtime Stories in 94, bringing in, amongst others, Nellie Hooper, who just worked with Massive Attack on Protection. But really, it didn't really trouble the charts too much, that stuff. It was a bit, it was a bit too early. But in the meantime, Madonna had turned herself into a bit of a, a mogul because she had Maverick Records then, and she was the US label to sign The Prodigy in 96, prior to The Fat of the Land, as they were chasing the next trend after grunge, which I mentioned, which at that point was supposed to be electronica and dance music, whatever electronica means. But really, all her work culminated in Ray of Light, of her taking those trends and sounds and making them mainstream, having William Orbit as the main producer and having tracks mixed by DJs like Oakenfold and Sasha. Uh, And it was an example of Madonna taking an underground sound and flipping it. I mean, she was 40 years old when she did this. And it, and it certainly wasn't guaranteed to be a success. You uh, 2 had just tried it with Pop in 97, which was a f- real failure. And even dear old David Bowie had tried it with Earthling, also in 97. And it had really, really not worked. So once again, she, she pioneered the flipping of an underground scene into the mainstream. And we've got a lot to thank her for. And then when was the first dance number one? Well, in the UK at least, it was Mars's Pump Up the Volume. Classic. Wow, what a song. Yes. And it's such a weird song. 
to be number one in 1987, followed by things like 19 and whatever, like so very early dance tunes. Mm. But once you get into the 1990s, as we mentioned, that Josh Wink High State of Consciousness, oh. sort of faithless, Born Slippy, as you mentioned, off the train spotting soundtrack. Prodigy's Firestarter, which is memorably described as the first number one in the UK that you couldn't whistle. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly can't. <laughs> and then, and then Moby, you know, with you know, twelve out of the thirteen tracks being used in adverts, and you know, all of those singles, and that that was all the same scene. Although it was starting to bifurcate into things like ambient and chill out dubstep, you know. You mentioned Leftfield and Orbital, Aphex Twin. I mean, it was going in a weird, really interesting yeah, direction. Drum and bass, of course, which I'd like to devote a whole podcast to at some point. But I'm really proud of drum and bass. Without wishing to come across all UKIP as a kind of particularly British style of dance music, that Goldie obviously can really pioneered along with people like Fabio and Groove Rider, and then LTJ Bookham, who I saw on the same bill at the Subterranean with Carl Cox once, and was was brilliant, you know, Real. absolutely brilliant, yeah. yeah. And I just loved that the kind of breakbeats, which grew out of Jungle, which to be honest was a tough listen. Mm-hmm. Me, I thought you know it was pretty pretty hard, wasn't it? But, yeah. But once it softened and you had that that kind of classic breakbeat thing, and you know, that, that that was just a classic, really brilliant, you know. Your great urban sound. Yeah. Yeah. Re- really had to be experienced through huge speakers in a room full of people. Yeah. Very difficult to decode just sitting on your own in your room listening through your stereo. Yeah. Most yeah. of it didn't make any sense, I don't think. Not yeah. to my years anyway. Yeah. So in terms of the spin off genres, we touched on trip hop a bit and we're definitely gonna leave that for another pod in its in its main entirety simply because I think the pace of the music is different. It is, it's a counterpart to the music and a lot of the same people were involved, but obviously with the Bristol scene in particular, we'll probably combine it with an episode looking at Bristol as a music city. But we've got, you know, Chill Out, you've mentioned already, you know, the kind of like the Café Del Mar style kind of next morning, seeing the sunrise come up either there or at Copanyan or whatever. That that was a big thing as well, wasn't it? Very clever. Yeah. Because, of course, there's two stages to clubbing. There's the being up and then there's the going down. Yeah, yeah. And they managed to sort of innovate into an adjacent space. Yeah. And that was also very accessible. Yeah, Chill Out, you know, the Ministry of Sound, Double CD, Chill Out, Volume 1, must have sold millions of units. Oh, it was an easy lesson. You had people like Robert Miles and oh, those kind of, of people, yeah, didn't children, you? Yeah, children, yeah. Yeah, you know. Um, and then, what was it? There wasn't as so much Chill Out, but like ATB, 9am till they come, or whatever, yeah. you know. Um, all that kind of stuff, which was, by then, firmly... They got away from the anonymity and they were firmly into, like, recognisable tunes by that point, I think. And, of course... Later on, you had stuff like dubstep, which is quite a bit later, really. I mean, that's well into the noughties, which I enjoyed, but was definitely probably sort of more challenging again. Yeah. And, and sort of, you know, very varied. In yeah. fact, stuff like Burial, which I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. And then subsequently, you're onto Dizzy Rascal and Grime and, yeah. you know, sort of becomes kind of urban music, to mm-hmm. use that kind of catch-all term. Yeah. What about... The, the the brand, of course, mutated into huge festivals such as Creamfields. I mean, did you ever go to one of those tribal gathering earlier on as well and things like that? I didn't go to yeah. the festivals. I couldn't see the point. I yeah. don't think it would... I, we're never really translated. There were never great successes, those things. Yeah, yeah. These are... These are it's a sonic experience that needs to have, really have four walls around it. I mean, to be honest, I'm not really into festivals at the best of times. Yeah. Let alone for dance music. 
I mean, each to their own, but it wasn't my cup of tea. No, I mean, it, it It would have seemed just utterly exhausting, wouldn't it? It's all very well doing like one night from a cream when you've travelled up from Northampton from 10pm to 6am, to, 6 but to do it for three days... <laughs> yeah, it's unthinkable. You'd, yeah. be, you'd, be, you'd be dead. Yes, yeah, so pretty tough going. So... You mentioned the come down, so chill out on that. But there was also like a slightly darker side to the come down, really, in terms of you know. And, and one of the big things you mentioned already was that something that Sasha pioneered, which was the digitization. It, there was always skepticism about the about DJing as a profession, as to whether it was a kosher sort of thing that needed a lot of skill, you know. And I think we've established that yes, it probably did, but. With MP3s, did that end? Would you say? Yeah, yeah. Because you could you could get software quite easily on your computer, which allow you to beat match. Yeah, and you could take your time over it. Whereas if you think about it, you've got the speed of the turntable in real time, so you're having to be extremely ambidextrous to hear it over the music to match the beats, the key, the whole thing to bring people through, and for that to be seamless is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. To do that in real time, to improvise that, is utterly skillful. The moment you can do it on a computer and you can spend an hour and a half getting it right, it's over. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you mentioned the Criminal Justice Act earlier on, which was from 94, so quite early. That was a, a full frontal attempt by John Major's administration, wasn't it, to, to sort of clamp down on people gathering in fields and... A really bizarre, a bizarre moment in British legal history I think so yeah. it, was, it was Michael Howard the Home Secretary who proposed it as a direct response to the Castle Morton Common Festival about which I knew very little before mm. looking into this I don't know if you remember the no, headlines no. around the time it was a, a free festival for new age travellers as they were called in mm. those days in Morven in Worcestershire 40,000 people went there was an overcrowding mm. and there were drug use and it made the front pages and really, it was the final nail in the coffin for the kind of unlicensed event, so like the illegal rave, as they were called. And the act was targeted at certain strands of alternative culture, and the most notorious of which outlawed any music with a succession of repetitive beats. That's the quote. Yes, I remember that now. Yeah. It, described by legal experts as bizarre. Yeah. Because yeah. what is music if not a succession of repetitive beats? Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, it was... It was foolish, pernicious, fascistic. Yeah. And and God knows, it it, it really uh, invigorated the scene. It certainly didn't kill it. Yeah. But it did mean that, a bit like once Napster had gone into iTunes, there was, the scene was now ripe for commercial exploitation. And yeah. That's what happened next. MDMA, which we've mentioned, was generally, I think, a less narcissistic or inward-looking drug and certainly, I think, for the most part, was taken by millions of people and probably safely, but of course there were one or two high-profile casualties, the, the saddest of which was Leah Betts. And, uh, yes, tell us about that? she haunted my teenage years Yeah, as a drug user, however recreational, you thought about Leah Betts and you were like, oh God, so... To remind people, or if anyone hadn't heard of her, she was an 18-year-old Essex schoolgirl who took ecstasy and died and became the literal poster child for the anti-drug movement. What happened was she took ecstasy and then drank seven litres of water in 90 minutes. 
And that's what killed her. Mm. It wasn't the drug. There was a one million quid national poster campaign which, which had a picture of her from her school days um, labelled sorted. Just one ecstasy tablet took Leah Betts. Mm. And what's interesting is that this campaign was funded by alcohol companies who saw MDMA as a threat to their sales. And there was a sort of moral panic afterwards, including a £300,000 investigation by Essex Police to find who gave her the pill and never found anyone. And it was also buried at the time, to me at least, that she'd taken ecstasy safely many times before she died. Right, I didn't know that. It wasn't yeah. like it was sold as if the first time she'd taken ecstasy, like on her 18th birthday, is a treat or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But no, she, she'd been taking ecstasy for a while before mm. that. So under the surface of it, she makes an unlikely uh, totem for that movement. I think that's what got under the skin of the 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 establishment really wasn't it that the drug had so little bad publicity and so little side effects that they just had to grab on the one event that was tragic but as you said was not down to the drug at all really it was down to the the, the, the over drinking of the water yeah it was um, a, it was an effective campaign though and I remember the aforementioned righty he had Mixmag in his house one time and we were reading it and they'd done this thing on the dance music scene and drugs and they were talking about speed we were talking about the speed itself is whatever amphetamines but what it was being cut with in the UK at the time was pretty serious stuff and very memorably they put basically a slab of meat like a like a steak on a plate and then poured the speed over the top of it and it ate away the meat Really? <laughs> and we were reading it like, oh no. <laughs> you know, like, that's it. Yeah. Very, very effective. Yes, yeah, it would be, yeah. You know, like, can we have a good time without this? Mm-hmm. Because that I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah I, I'm reaching back 20-odd years, but mm. I remember that like yesterday. Yeah. And then could the superstar DJs have been accused of a level of greed? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, totally greedy I mean they were capitalists yeah yeah they wanted to make as much money as they could as quickly as possible they probably knew that uh, this was a this was going to be a summer long thing you know yeah it lasted a very short period of time Electronica didn't take off the way the record companies hoped Mm. the DJs came and went by the early noughties it completely transmuted into something else yeah it's not that Pete Tong isn't still going or Carl Mm. Cox still can't fill a room Mm. but the, the the scene changed from under them and actually things swung at the height at the point where electronica should have taken over pop and mainstream music swung hard towards the teenager mm-hmm. so spice girls came along and backstreet boys and stuff and really the record company was disrupted by a trend they couldn't have predicted yeah yeah i think that's right and then what about the the laddishness of some of the scene as it developed Certainly, I I would argue it really wasn't there for most of it. It was a very inclusive scene. I remember that left field gig I mentioned. Absolutely full of men and women, everybody dancing all the way to the back of the room, which is very different from if you would go and see like you know one of the Britpop bands at the time. Which, much as I enjoyed that music as well, it was it, it tended like most guitar gigs to be male heavy. Yeah, was that something that started to creep in? Would you say? Yeah, it did. Unfortunately, again, as it went into the mainstream, and so it was play, being played on Radio One as a road, heavily rotate like Faithless's Insomnia. Yes, yeah. Any bloke could have heard that tune. Any person, right? Yeah. And then they'd come along to the club, you know, get a whistle. 
grope the girl who's passing, get pissed, be boorish. And it really kind of, I don't know, it sort of, I felt like it poisoned the, the lake that we'd all been swimming in. Yeah. Because up until that point, people just went along to have a really nice time, boys and girls. It was very, right from the beginning, right from 1977 in Chicago in the warehouse, it, it was very gay-friendly. And th- that disappeared. By the late 90s and the new lad thing, gone. Yeah, yeah. But... Perhaps not, because I think dance music, all during this period, apart from the start, it was generally not as popular in the US. And then from about the mid-noughties onwards in the US, this new phenomenon, EDM, has started. And apparently it was coined as the term electronic dance music to kind of get away from the drugs. And since then, there have been some multi well-known purveyors of, of this style very much at the kind of sort of more mainstream sort of with the big drop in in the music and and, and the big sort of cheesiness so people like Avicii who to our shame we hadn't heard of uh, when we did our Scandinavia pod like the other week and sadly he's passed on since then but people like David Guetta and uh, Calvin Harris and that kind of thing and so so it's kind of mutated and really has become sort of a much more controlled kind of big business in run by big concert companies and that now is that yeah yeah Yeah. and some key producers there think about lady gaga even Katy perry yeah yeah umbrella by rihanna these are all edm songs really yeah kind of transmuted and warped by the mainstream the most mainstream of mainstream yeah um but that doesn't mean that dance music doesn't continue and thrive and i'm happy for that but that's also not what i listen to anymore no, I mean, one of the bands who, or one of the acts that transcend this, really, who, who sort of maybe span the era the most successfully are Daft Punk, of course, who, and you've got to go back, I think, to about 97 for uh, Around the World and, and their first album. And yet, of course, Get Lucky was, was, was just the monster smash of 2014 or yeah. around about then. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, they really have spanned that and they've kind of grown with that. And they always have one foot in a more mainstream camp and one foot in the experimental camp. And I think that exists to that day. So so I think we've seen it's a very international form of music, isn't it? A lot of its purveyors are from different countries, mm-hmm. uh, certainly not an Anglo-American kind of phenomenon like a lot of pop music. So, so yeah, I think it's uh, long may it exist. I'd like to quickly mention, of course, that the Super Club thing carries on with the likes of Berghain in uh, Berlin, which has famously got a very, very restrictive kind of door policy, which I think at the height of dance music, the door policy wasn't actually that restrictive, was it? Or it's like... Well, it was It was weirdly restrictive. So you couldn't go to Cream wearing trainers. No, no. So you had to wear these sort of ugly late 90s buckled shoes. Yeah, And yeah. you couldn't really wear blue jeans. So, you, yeah. you know, I, I wore these sort of banana yellow French Connection things. Yeah, yeah. With my diesel top, my chocolate brown diesel top. So they were weirdly restrictive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like even to the point where you couldn't wear Ralph Lauren shirts in. It was a sort of inverted snobbery. Yeah, uh, it, it, it was it was all over the place, to my recollection, anyway. Yeah. After this break, we're going to be talking about the album of the month. Well, our album of the month this month, in keeping with the theme that we've talked about in the pod so far. Is the album by Ross from Friends, which is Family Portrait. Now, I have to admit that Ross from Friends recently was on the bill uh, for a festival I went to in Oxford, and I genuinely thought it was the Ross from Friends. 
And I thought, oh, that's interesting because, you know, I mean, for goodness sake, I'm going to a festival in October where Steve Davis is DJing. So you've got to forgive my my mistake. But it turns out it's the nom de plume of a guy called Felix Clary Weatherall, who's like a dance music producer from London. No relation, I think, to Andy Weatherall, who we mentioned earlier on, or Julian Clary. So I, 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 I think, anyway, I suspect not. And very interesting album, actually. It's like, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, David, how would you describe it? I mean, it's certainly dance music, but in a kind of sort of electronic producer, some low-key kind of way. Yeah, I mean, it does... Obviously, Ross from Friends locates it in the 90s, and it does sound very 90s, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Actually, listening back to that Essential Selection CD, which I used as a sort of rubric to pick out those four DJs, none of the tracks on that album would feel out of place in that 90-95 album no, featuring the best no, of dance at no. that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was expecting when I'd heard, I think there was a big single that he released probably quite a long time ago now, three or four years ago, and I was expecting it to be a little bit in the manner of Stardust, you know, music sounds better with, than you, with you, which is one of those big hits we actually haven't mentioned yet, and that was another one, I think. Great tune. Yeah, but it's actually like a bit sort of warmer and fuzzier than that, isn't it? It's got that. I mean, the Avalanches album from a couple of years ago, I think, sort of reminded me a little bit of that, you know, their second one, you know, in terms of that kind of warm, slightly muted kind of sound, and there's a lot going on. It's certainly influenced by dubstep as well, mm-hmm. and it's not an out and out commercial album by any any means, but it has got some some sort of wannabe bangers as well, you know. It's, yeah. it, it, it's nice company, isn't it? Yeah, like yeah. There's never there's not any sharp edges. No, there's nothing particularly anthemic on there. No, but there's also nothing particularly difficult. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's actually quite a nice piece start to finish, isn't it? Yes, yes. It, I think it's it's probably best understood yeah. as a. And I'm sure he could have just, at the festival he played, just put it on and people would have been happy with that. I mean, I particularly like the track Rats and um, Thank God I'm a Lizard. The second track on the album is also really powerful. It reminds me that this year there's been a lot of dance music, which is more from the kind of bedroom producer or studio producer ilk. And in the last pod we mentioned, uh, Daniel Avery and John Hopkins have both produced really good kind of sort of what you might call techno albums. But I think I think it's fair to say that Electronic music seems in recent times, certainly this type of electronic music without vocals, etc., is to be a little bit more introspective than it was in the heyday. You know, I think it's 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 like you know maybe had to seed ground in terms of pure pop to your Beyonces and Iriannas and, yeah. and sort of the big people and hip hop. Yeah, and so it now is once again a kind of boffins, yeah, sort of style of music. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I kind of I can imagine that the perfect. That you think about books and their ideal reader, the ideal listener to this is probably listening to this on extremely expensive headphones. Yes. In a very comfy Parker Knoll leather armchair, mm. you know, surrounded by some sort of Scandinavian aesthetic in their expensive West London flat. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think a, he, he was asked, I think, in an interview in Loud and Quiet recently as to whether... There was a rumour that he'd actually been sued by Ross from Friends, and he and he said that was an urban myth. So, uh, but um, I don't know how you could get away with suing him just for that. But yeah, definitely worth looking out. I mean, I think if maybe in the category of promising rather than sort of transcendental, I'd say you know it's uh, certainly if you like your dance music, you like your electronic music, and you like a good. I mean, background music isn't giving it enough credit. I think that's a bit unfair, but I think it's it's certainly like a good accompaniment, isn't it? So, but there's the rub, isn't it? Yeah. What do you do with this album? Do you stick yeah. it on in the background and do the washing up? I mean, 
Do you sit there and listen to it very intensely? Do you stick it up to the maximum your stereo will go and dance in your room? I didn't quite know what to do with it. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't quite know what he expected of me. I think it would sound amazing in a club. Yeah, yeah, it would do, I think. Yeah, yeah. Really loud, yeah. you know, surrounded by people who are into it. Like, there's a couple of tracks, and forgive me, I, I didn't really make note of the track titles, but where the, the melody kind of comes in and fades in and out, it's quite crackly or muted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way you receive melody lines in clubs, because you can't really hear, because of mm. the way the sound is being interrupted by the bodies around you and turning your head left and right, was actually very evocative. But yeah, I couldn't really decide what would be the best way to consume the album. I've, I really enjoyed it and I've listened to it a few times and would listen to it a few more times. Yeah, I think it's definitely a promising debut and I hope it's up there in the end of the year, reckoning. Anyway, thanks very much for coming in, Dave. We really enjoyed that troll through 20 years ago's dance music scene. We'll be back hopefully quite soon with episode 33. Not quite sure about the topic yet. Thanks again for listening. We're at SoundingBoard69 on Twitter and we're at Podbean if you're listening to the podcast. Thank you very much again for listening. interact with the team at at soundingboard69 on twitter and facebook